Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined again by my friend Oliver Trolldy, a graduate student at Notre Dame, to continue our conversation about the intellectual dark web about online life, about the clashes of liberalism, about the strange phenomena of our times as they are revealed on the internet. Hello, Oliver. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm doing well. Now, the intellectual dark web. Mm -hmm. A couple of things that I thought will come into the conversation. One of them is their Gen Xers. The Weinstein brothers are born in 65 and 69. Sam Harris yeah. 67. Jordan Peterson 62, so I guess that actually makes him a boomer, or at any rate, mm -hmm. the end of the baby boom. And at least Eric Weinstein talks about this now and then, that it's a generational thing, that boomers screwed America, mm -hmm. and it's up to Gen X to show the millennials and younger Americans a better way. So that's part of the reasoning behind his the portal. And he also says sometimes that his friend and boss, Peter Thiel, says that, you know what, mm -hmm. this is our time, we're only getting better. This is the American moment for Gen Xers. Hmm. Old people are discredited in important ways. Boomer institutions are discredited. Boomer ideologies from the foreign policy stance of the Middle Eastern wars, to the financial crisis, or any number of other things, of course. And arguably, you have... Okay, maybe this is a little too electoral politics. Maybe it's not that interesting. But Andrew Yang, who is the only remaining Gen Xer candidate in the Democratic primary, is the IDW candidate. Very good point. And since he was on Weinstein's Portal podcast... Yeah. And on Joe Rogan, actually. So I think mm -hmm. that, of course, this would be more of the direction. Somehow reforming the state through technology, startup mentalities. And, of course, that gets to something about AW that in some ways they're upbeat people. But mm -hmm. in another sense, they're all saying the end of the world is coming. Right. We're facing a massive crisis. But on the upside, we can finally deal with it. Yeah, that's the strange thing about the IDW, that you have both of those things. You have the kind of Steven Pinker style, can't you see how good stuff is approach, as well as the Jordan Peterson, you know, the sky is falling. And if you, if people don't get their chaos and order energies in line or whatever, then civilization is going to fall apart. Yeah, so people like Sam Harris are more on the Steven Pinker side, way more yeah. upbeat, but the Weinstein brothers are way more on the Peterson side, that impending catastrophe, climate change, right. so political catastrophe, institutions that are no longer working, people no longer believe in them, so it's a crisis of democracy, not just of the environment. This strange combination there that's also reflected by Andrew Yang, who says, you know, vote for me, I smile a lot, and I'm super smart, and also right. the automation that's going to make all your lives obsolete is coming. <laughs> that seems to be the attitude that defines these people and one assumes that it defines Gen X more broadly though of course you know there are limits to generalizations right. here but a lot of the music these people listen to had this character too a lot of punk for example mm -hmm. it was both in some sense joyous and in some sense the world is on fire I've been listening to a lot of slacker rock from the 90s recently so maybe that'll be applicable like pavement or what? I've been listening to Beck, you know, with the slacker extraordinaire. Yeah, that's right. Um, There's not much of that attitude left of that uh, 90s excerpt, but... No. A form of abstaining from the end of history enthusiasm or the pop optimism, but also abstaining from any doom-mongering. Yeah. So with the generational notion, and mm -hmm. I think it's a perfect idea to bring in Andrian. 
Now here's another thought. Another thing that makes these guys interesting is the strange variety of their backgrounds. I think it's fair to call them intellectuals or you know if you want a classicizing spin, sophists because mm-hmm. they deal with more than one thing. None of them stay in their lanes. They reject the specialization typical of academia. But on the other hand, they do all have academic backgrounds that are right. serious and they do see the world from that point of view. With Eric Weinstein, it is that he comes from mathematics. With Brett, that he comes from evolutionary biology. Mm. With Sam Harris, that it's neuroscience instead. And with Jordan Peterson, it comes from academic psychology. Mm. It makes for certainly interesting pairs, if you think about it. Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris are natural fits. One's on the psychology side, one's on the neuroscience Mm. side. You would want to somehow put these things together. But this is also true of the Weinstein brothers who look at life and cosmology, one from the side of math and one from the side of evolutionary biology, which again, you'd think Mm -hmm. that maybe this could be put together somehow. I'm not sure it's possible. Academia, as it's practiced, suggests no, nothing can be put together anymore. But as ideas, they do seem to have a certain going together. Yeah. Psychology is more interested in how you experience being human, whereas neuroscience is less interested in that, but much more interested in what can you observe and measure of what it's like to be human. It is far more rigorous, if far less human. That is to say, neuroscience looks at the being human from the outside. It describes it. Right. Psychology at least tries to get inside the human perspective. Why do people think this way? Why do people get themselves involved in all these dramas? I don't think anybody would argue that from the point of view of neuroscience, you would explain that there's a lot of neuroticism in being human. A lot of self-delusions, a lot of self-contradictions, a lot of psychic drama in everybody's lives. You couldn't, you know, by a neuroscientific analysis of the human being say, you know, people fall in love and they break each other's hearts or they get super angry over politics or whatever it is, you know, they they have daddy issues. These things Uh don't emerge in a neuroscientific way, but they are obviously very important parts of life. More broadly, there is this passage early in Aristotle's treatise on the soul where he says, the dialectician will say that anger is the desire for retaliation. But on the other hand, the physicist will say anger is the boiling of the blood around the heart. Right. The one looks at the formal cause, the other one looks at the material Right. The material cause is more scientific, but it's incomplete. It throws away being human and it will throw away the object of study ultimately. You'd have to somehow maybe put them together. And he elaborates this. He says that it's not just that the dialectician can tell you that anger is a desire, but he tells you the purpose of the desire. So it's not just the formal cause, but also the teleological cause. It's a desire for retaliation, for revenge, for retribution. Right. To get even. That's how he presents this analysis that you have to think on the one hand about matter and another one about form. You have to somehow manage to put these things together or otherwise being human falls apart. And since we started talking about these things, I've been giving a lot of thought to these guys and why there's something wrong with what they're saying at this level of psychology. That is to say, Mm -hmm. how do they understand what it means to be human? And you can see, you know, when you start hearing the weird stuff. Jordan Peterson, he tells you to get better habits, which is not a bad thing to say to people, and it might be necessary now. But then he gets into this metaphysics of order and chaos. Right. And at that level, is not just that they're disconnected, your ethics in Aristotelian terms, from something like your metaphysics. It's that there's a further problem, that if you think of being or the universe in terms of order and chaos, it's not clear which is primary or if right. it is primary, how can you account for soul? In some way, that is to say, being human, you try to unify the phenomena, you have to get on with life. Right. You can't give a coherent account of these things. It would seem that you yourself are either order or chaos or split against yourself. This is not going to hold up. 
Yeah, there's a place in his book, I think this is in my review, you know, on the one page he has this yin-yang sort of new agey idea where he says you need to unify these things. Then on the next page he says, you know, order is when you're ice skating and chaos is when you fall through the ice or something like that. And so at that point it's just kind of like, why do I need to unify? Nobody needs to unify those things. Yes, exactly. You know, you just don't want to fall through the ice, right? Exactly. So it's just incoherent what he's doing there. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So, yeah, chaos is the phantom image of how we experience our lives, our uncertainty, our mortality, our inability to deal well with the future, which is indeed so unpredictable. But you can't turn it into a metaphysical principle, much less a moral principle, since indeed nobody would choose this. Right. And he's trying to say that order is primary above chaos, but actually chaos is the moral way to go through things. You have to fight it off. But it's not clear what its status is, because if it's a natural principle, why are you fighting a natural principle? Right. <laughs> or maybe the nature is the problem. <laughs> it's a cosmic principle, then maybe the cosmos is the problem. Right. Nobody wants to crash through the ice. You, you die that way. Or, you know, with Harris, who thinks he's so much more upbeat and he thinks that actually science has repealed religion and science has repealed philosophy. And science has actually yeah. dealt with all these problems. But, you know, you still have a hole in your soul, but you can plug it with meditation or, you know, drugs. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, he has the other kind of new age you think. Because you can't yeah. throw away the fact that people do not experience themselves as so upbeat. So on the one hand, he tells them, look, the scientific truth is there's no free will. You're just determined as anything is. But you don't think of yourself that way. And from your point of view, you're not. But really, you're just a spectator in a movie. But when you're a spectator in a movie, you know, you do move in your chair. You do go, oh my God, did that just happen? Like, it feels real to you. Right. And because it feels real to you, you're willing to go along for a ride that was essentially defined. But, you know, there are bad parts of the ride for which purposes there are all these drugs and meditation. Right. And so that turns out to cancel action. And not just in the sense that what's the point of doing a lot of stuff if, in fact, you are in all these ways predetermined, but in a more serious way, you cannot give an account of being human. So just like Jordan Peterson threatens to say that all there is to being human is being inside of yourself. And Uh when it feels chaotic, that's what it is. Sam Harris says that actually there's no inside inside of you. You're just outside. Your insidedness, your experience of yourself as being yourself looking out at the world from your perspective is just a delusion. It makes you think that there's such a thing as freedom because you think you are making choices, but that's just a delusion created by your inside, the human perspective looking outside of the world, and it doesn't add up. There's no evidence of it. Consciousness is unprovable. Yeah. As I said, in certain ways they match. And there's a problem like that with the Weinstein brothers too, because the biologist essentially says like Sam Harris, it is determined. I mean, it doesn't feel fully determined because you need conflict in evolution, something like that. But if nature determines things through genes that wish to reproduce themselves, your experience is a delusion. From the point of view of the genes, there is no human being or a dog. They're just genes. What you experience, you are a human being. There are others like you. There are dogs. There are wolves. There are whatever. No, there aren't. These are just agglomerations of genes and they're all temporary. You think that these are categories or beings, but they're not. The only real beings are the genes. Right. Genes change, but slow. But all these other things change way faster. The genes care about themselves. There's no you to you. You can't jump from evolutionary theory to the political progress that Brett wants. And so he says, actually, you have to stop evolution. You have to fight against nature. So you get into this strange mess there that if you're saying on the one hand, science has proved that evolution is the way of human beings. 
And on the other hand, we are going to have some kind of capacity to overwhelm science through, you know, progressive politics. Right. Progressive politics has absolutely no scientific status. How is it anything but wishful thinking? <laughs> yeah, I remember last time you were saying that one of your critiques of the IDW was that they didn't recognize political topics. They each kind of sought to cure politics by saying, oh, we can just do math and we can do politics that way, or we can just do biology and we can do politics that way, mm-hmm. and something like that. Exactly. I found that interesting, yeah. I thought about it a bit more and I connected it with this other thing that I noticed about them that they're saying, so, you know, I've got the science that tells you how the universe is. And also I'm a political liberal (laughs) and these don't really match. But it turns out that being a political liberal is a kind of moralizing myth that allows you to deal with the fact that your science teaches you that there's no such thing as a human being. You know, the way Aristotle talks about human being is you're a soul. What does it mean that you're a soul? Well, it means that you, you have a capacity to relate to the outside gives these examples think about nutrition you're taking something from outside from the world and bringing it inside right to make more of yourself maintain your own being but because you bring it inside you have to transform it you have to assimilate it in some way and that means that it's not the outside anymore the bringing of the outside in somehow doesn't make you notice that that's what you're doing once it gets in it becomes inside the Mm -hmm. food is transformed into whatever you need if not, you know, you die, right? I mean, you can swallow rocks, but in that case, you're going to die because you can't turn the outside into an inside. You can't assimilate. That's how Aristotle tells you, look at it. Your body, all bodies are sameness machines. They mm-hmm. take things that are different and turn them into the same as themselves. If you eat a chicken, you don't add to yourself a chicken part or something like that. Right. You add to yourself a you part. Whatever it was before is transformed into whatever you are. Any organism takes things in to turn into itself. And in each organism, it will be sort of different depending on that organism's own specific things. But what is common to all of them is that they transform the outside into an inside and it becomes unrecognizable. You can't look at a human being and say, oh, that's because he ate a chicken last week. Right. Or whatever. So that would be the problem with nutrition, that you do take in the outside, but you're not aware of it as such because you make it into an inside. Perception is the other way around, because then it seems to you that you're stretching to go outside. You're looking to see something, you're grasping to touch something, you're trying to smell. You're always getting outside of yourself to see what is out there in the world. Perception is the only part of the soul that really insists that this is what you are, a soul trying to get out there. Right. And when it doesn't work well, it becomes obvious. Think about something like, you know, you squint your eyes. You know the world is out there, but you're trying to see and you have to squint because it's not easy to get from where you are to where that thing in the world is. Another great example is, you know, look at the stick in the water. It'll look bent. Right. But you know that that's a delusion. And how do you know? Because you can touch it. The sense of touch will correct the mistake you make when you think about what you saw. It's not that your eyes lied to you. Your eyes saw what they saw, but what you think they saw is wrong. But you can use your sense of touch to check the shape of the thing that you saw. Something, shape or figure, is shared between eye and hand, between sight and touch. But, you know, color isn't, firmness isn't. The eye can't see firmness and the hand can't touch color. But they can share this figure thing. And so somehow your senses are able to work together and one sense can correct another. It gets way more sophisticated, of course. I mean, if you hear voices, but what you're seeing is a screen in front of you, I mean, you might think, oh, it's probably music or, you know, it's like it's a recording, right? You can reason about what is this thing. You don't have to assume, oh, it's a human voice. Probably there's a human hiding behind the screen. There's no human behind the screen. 
So the senses can check each other in certain ways, which means that somehow you can imagine things and then check the imaginations. Is this reasonable or am I imagining crazy things and I should rethink? And so this constant struggle with the senses and the imagination emphasizes soul. That is to say that you're trying to negotiate what's outside and what's inside. What am I perceiving here? What is the sensation? Am I thinking about this right? Have I made the wrong identification? Am I drunk and am I not seeing straight for that reason? You don't assume that the world is crazy because you're drunk. You realize right. there's something wrong with you. Right. So in all these experiences, Aristotle suggests like this is where soul becomes more obvious because you are aware that you're you and there is a world out there that your senses disclose, but they don't do the perfect disclosures. Your grasp on being is imperfect. It's only through appearances or mostly through appearance. And that's why it's the, the most obvious part, because thinking isn't like that. When once you get to thinking, you know, you think about math, you don't need to even have your eyes open or, you know, be aware of the world around you. If you start thinking about something, you can get sort of completely lost in it. Now, of course, the things you're thinking about came to you through your perceptions. But when once they are arrived at in your mind, you're away from the world and it's exactly like nutrition. The outside has become inside and you just concern yourself with the inside. You're no longer concerned with stretching out of yourself to get to the world, to figure out what am I seeing here, what am I hearing here. All of a sudden you are stuck in yourself again. And so that's what Aristotle calls soul, this relationship between the outside and the inside mm -hmm. that is typical of all living beings, but not say of rocks. Right. Plants have to deal somehow with their environment because they recognize it as being in some sense outside, but you know, only at the level of nutrition. Right. Animals, he says they have perceptions and you can see that. But human beings also have this imagination and mind that makes them more peculiar. That is to say, human beings are a problem for human beings. Human beings don't live on instinct and therefore they have to think about all sorts of things and the thinking often goes wrong. And so, you know, the proof of soul for Aristotle, just like as I was saying, the case of perception, it's when it kind of screws up or it's imperfect because then you, you're aware suddenly that you're trying to sense but your senses aren't working well. You could say otherwise that it's just like you're a part of the world and plugged into the world fairly perfectly. But whenever your senses don't work very well, you realize that you're sort of separate from the world. It's hard. It's a labor to get out of yourself and into the world. And he says there's something similar happening with imagination and uh -huh. imagination's connection to mind. The imagination, you can always represent your things being other than they are in your perceptions. You can play with them, try to think about them again. And this is always required for thought. Like I was conjuring you for you a mental image of Jordan Peterson. And you're saying, yeah, you know, this reminds me of something that I was right. talking about in my review of this. You can present these things in your imagination. Oh, yeah, he said this. And it was like pages in a book like this and this. Uh -huh. These are mental images. You don't have perceptions of them, but they are in your imagination. And your imagination continuously has to conjure these things for you to think about. And they do allow you to think about it. But the very fact that in the imagination things are uncertain. The shadow of doubt always plays imaginations. It's this way, but uh -huh. it could be another way. You can imagine, did I close the door? I'm not sure. Did I, did I start the fire? I don't remember for sure. And I wasn't paying a lot of attention and I forgot. Uh -huh. Well, you know, I mean, did I? I don't know. I could have done it this way, but I could have done it that way. Or where did I lose my keys? I think they're on the table. But are they? They could be otherwise. Your imagination tells you about anything that is this way, that it could be another way. Uh -huh. And that again shows a strain, a difficulty of being a part of the world. It's just hard to get from where you are to the beings. And that, of course, is also true of mind since reasoning isn't perfect and it's not permanent. That's what Aristotle calls soul, the attempt to negotiate the inside and the outside. 
and it's worse for human beings because human beings are most obsessed with individuality. Right. So you think it's in this sense. So you said before the IDW has no understanding of soul. You think yeah. it's in this sense that they don't have a sense of the difficulty of negotiating kind of the inside of one's experience versus the reality of the outside world and the reality of other people? Yep, exactly. You know, they're all straining, but you see with them that they fall apart in one direction or in the other. Uh -huh. And so, you know, part of it is what modern science does, right? I mean, modern science can give you a theory of evolution or a neuroscience, something like that. But the price you pay for it is you abandon how it feels to be human. Right. Sam Harris is the best example of this. He is the most coherent modern scientist among them because he says your experience of being human is a delusion. It's more like right. watching a movie than your access to being. What Socrates or Aristotle are trying to do is stupid. You can't get from right. who you are to the world. Only through scientific machinery can you get any objectivity. It would be interesting to ask him whether he thinks that what the machines observe, experiment on and measure is really real. Whether those are the true beings, whether their ontological status is certain and how he arrives at that certainty. Of course, I'm not sure that he thinks in these terms. Not sure he has the capacity for right. philosophical inquiry. But that's what he seems to say. Your experience is a delusion. It's exactly of the order of you thinking that there's a screen in front of you where actually it's just, you know, these atomic and subatomic particles. You see a screen or a table, but it's not real. The ontologically real thing is this subatomic particle. Right, yeah. And you just have a delusion. All your life is that delusion. You know, you don't have to involve microphysics in this. You could just say, like, you think that there's a sun moving in the sky. That's your experience. That's why you say sunset or sunup or sunrise or dawn or dusk, but it's a delusion. Actually, uh -huh. it's the earth moving around it. Right. Your mind is telling you something that your eyes can't believe. You tell yourself, oh, actually, you know, my eyes must be wrong. But that's, you know, your experience of life. That's what that is. And it's wrong. And if you push that far enough, you arrive at the full modern scientific Sam Harris position. Your experience is as such wrong. You need to get out of your experience to get scientific knowledge. And the two cannot be connected in any serious way. There is no natural experience correlative of the electron or of the galaxy or of any real ontological object of science. You just think these things are there. And because you are so wrong, permanently, continuously wrong, except when you read the readings on machines, which are reliable, apparently, because you're so continuously wrong, that's why screwed up things happen to you. And so you need to learn to deal with being human, which is a mistake. And you do right. that by two means. One of them is meditation, which teaches you that what your imagination tells you, what your fantasies come because of your perceptions is wrong. Just give it up. Just stop believing in free will. It's a delusion based on your error of perception right. and the imagination and thought. And on the other hand, you know, like you got to medicate. There's a TED Talks version of progress, but there's also a hardcore pharmacology version of progress. Right. And in that sense, you know, Sam Harris is the ideal version of what happens in America where you drug children, boys especially. Uh -huh. You can tell them fantasies, you know, the TED Talk etiquette ideology, but if they don't want to believe those normy fantasies of conformism, then you're going to have to drug them. Harris is a little bit of an enigma to me. I don't watch his podcast or read his books or anything. And I'd always kind of felt that the scientific persona and the new age persona were at odds a bit. So you're giving a theory under which there's a real kind of underlying unity there where the new age stuff is kind of just what happens when you decide that the human experience is 
fundamentally illusory and kind of any, you know, concomitant meaning that would come with it is also illusory. Yep. And it also seems, so the other thing I think it has something to do with is just the thoroughgoing utilitarianism of Harris, where the view is basically the the only thing with ethical import is our experiences, which I think is becoming more and more kind of default view, not among philosophers, but as a kind of, you know, untheorized, reflexive you know, what, what is the tragedy of our generation is always the fear of missing out. You know, I didn't get to have this experience. I didn't get to have that experience. The tragedy is no longer the fact that you die, that you don't get to live forever, but that you might not be able to do everything on your bucket list, which, you're, you know, your bucket list is what are all the experiences that I have to have that I have to kind of check off while I still have the capacity to have experiences. And there's a sort of responsibility associated with that the responsibility of giving your own life the most value it can in the only kind of moral accounting that we really seem to be able to understand. And I do think that Harris is in line with that. And the kind of pharmaceutical or pharmacological approach is also in line with that. Yeah. Yeah, they do seem to be connected. Part of this is merely a concession to the delusion. Since you think that a vacation in the tropics might be fun, you know, why the hell not? It's not meaningful in any sense, but nothing is. It seems like a last-ditch form of hedonism. You're going to get some pleasures, you're going to have some fun. You're deluded, but you are deluded, so... Right. Since science has proved your experience is worthless, there's no point in trying to get from your experience to serious knowledge. You can only do that through a leap into science. But then what can science tell you about how you should live your life? Precious little. Right. It can establish this sort of utilitarianism. Do no harm, health, safety. Think about the long-term consequences of your actions, of self-interest that you can aggregate over a population. And in that sense, it seems like liberalism is just the least demanding moral political Uh view of things. So it's a default. Okay, so now you're bringing up liberalism. Let me ask you this. So I don't always understand this term. You know, this term is used in many, many ways. I mean, we're talking about Sam Harris. Do you feel that Sam Harris is like the end stage of, you know, is like the accomplishment of what a liberal subject is? You know, do you you think Sam Harris is kind of like the apotheosis of liberal subjectivity? Not quite, because as I said, there's a core contradiction that he exhibits well. And Uh maybe the exemplar that exhibits the core contradiction is not the highest exemplar. Right. The contradiction is, on the one hand, you have to live within the realm of delusion, of experience. And so have fun, don't do harm, follow these basic utilitarian rules. Uh Just don't think about moral questions. Just don't think about your own mortality. These things are meaningless. But on the other hand, there is a proof that your experience is meaningless, which is science. Mm -hmm. But then you have to ask yourself, is the true liberal the one who is fully deluded, fully lives in experience and therefore doesn't experience the contradiction that his enjoyment of his own experience is based on the belief that nothing matters, that there's scientific proof that being human is a delusion? Or is it, on the other hand, the case that the true liberal or the perfect liberal is the one who, when once he has experienced the contradiction between his experience and what science tells him about how illusory his experience is, fully chooses science and dedicates himself to study of scientific questions? 
so you have these two radical alternatives and Sam Harris seems to be straddling them. He's both a scientist and a businessman, both a popular guru and a thinker on all sorts of human questions. He's neither living the life of experience nor living the life of science. So it seems like that's the problem of the sophist. It's not really one nor the other. He's not really in this world nor really in the world of science. But in his case, at least, I think you can see in the sharpest way this contradiction. Uh-huh. Fear of missing out is one perfect expression of that. Just get everything you can out of life. Not in despite of the fact that it's a delusion, but because it's a delusion. This is all you're going to get. This is all that is available. We were talking before about the IDW being Gen X politics. How do you think that relates to... So when I think about Gen X, I think about this generation that kind of, you know, the media of the 90s was about having all these things that maybe we no longer take for granted, you know, thinking that they were illusory in some way. So, you know, you have all of these movies that would never be made now because they're about the ordinary American experience of having a stable marriage and a well-paying job and, you know, healthy children, which is now, I think, rightly understood as not the ordinary experience, but as a kind of like top tier experience that most people in my generation don't have access to. But then finding, you know, thinking of that life as missing something or as papering over something, you know, American beauty or, you know, in a less kind of serious or whatever vein, you know, office space. I actually have a higher opinion of office space. which Yeah, yeah, I think, too. I think American Beauty is a perfect example of what many of the intellectual dark web and other Gen Xers are saying is the boomer delusion. Uh-huh. Just drop out of meritocracy and start smoking weed and work out and remember your 60s youth when you were high and listening to music and right. screwing around. Live the life of a lotus eater. Forgetting mm-hmm. the drama of being human. How are you going to deal with your mortality? FOMO. Any version of that is indeed a delusion. And I think Gen Xers are right to criticize this, both the boomer materialism and the optimism on which it was based. As you said, it's not going to happen. America is no longer a society where most adults are married. This has never happened before. So right. we really are in new waters. This Gen X criticism of the boomers and a Gen X siding with the experience of millennials and younger Americans is quite realistic. They are right. Society has changed a lot. All sorts of things that were believed or promised have turned out to be false or at any rate far more difficult of access than had ever been suggested Uh down to, as I said, the basic issues like, are you married? Now, what's strange is that all of these intellectual dark web types are American normals, Uh married with kids, not entertaining divorce or psychodrama or erotic catastrophes or personal adventures of self-discovery that might ruin your life. None of that. They're banal, normal people. It's their ideas that are strangely out of whack with Mm -hmm. that mid-century world of life and work, marriage and kids, everything stable, long-term. You get through all of these things in good order, like a long, satisfying mortgage. (laughs) in a way that makes them very abnormal sociologically. Most people today are not like that. Mm -hmm. But in another way, there's this question of ideas where they really are strange and unpopular. 
they have different ideas, but what they have in common is the idea that boomers lied, that America is in decline, that restarting economic growth, national cohesion, a purposive progressive policy that's not mm-hmm. insane, that all of this will actually be very difficult and require a transformation in how we think. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just trying to think about some of the stuff you're saying. You know, a lot of the IDW people seem to come from or resonate most with people I know in Silicon Valley. So one common thing between the optimism and the pessimism, you know, we're talking about how they have both of these elements. One common thing is that they do seem to think that the mark of technology, they think that there's a sort of inevitability about it. And that is common between the real techno-optimists who say technology will solve this problem, technology will solve that problem. And, you know, the AI riskers, do you know about AI risk? AI risk is this idea, you know, it's like Terminator or the Matrix or something, right? Our artificial intelligence is going to get better and better. And we have to watch out because we're going to get so good at making artificial intelligence that we're going to make it better than us. And, you know, it's going to mess with us. It's going to beat us up. So this is taken very seriously. There are even some people at like Vox who take this very seriously, I think, but certainly in a little dark web circle that's taken seriously. So yeah, that's the other side of techno-optimism is thinking, oh, we're going to do such a good job creating this technology that we're going to make something that is post-human, you know, that is better than human. So that may be another kind of way of putting human experience aside to say, look, human experience is not, you know, the Copernican or pre-Copernican center of the universe around which everything else revolves. On the one hand, we may be creating something new that could have its own experiences or even without having experiences could displace ours and kind of the historical importance in the universe. And on the other hand, there's attention to non-human forms of experience. So in the more kind of benign and comprehensible way, this would be animal experience or maybe the experience of aliens. I don't think there are any people who like believe in aliens in the IDW. It's sort of surprising that nobody who believes in aliens is in the IDW. But on the other hand, there's a certain friendliness to panpsychism and to theories about consciousness as not necessarily having to do with humanity or, or even animality. Yeah, I think it shows that these people are to an extent interesting because they're running up against some kind of limit. There's a problem with liberalism that sends these people thinking about how maybe to solve it and all of them seem to be driven by the notion that A, liberalism is essentially good and B, it has come to a shocking crisis that might be the end of humanity. Now, these are two things that are very difficult to hold together. You could say liberalism is good and life goes on kind of all right. Uh And you could say that liberalism is a problem and it has led us to this catastrophe. We trusted it when we shouldn't have. Modern politics with all the technology and all these things that are new historically may have seemed like a bright idea, but we were stupid. We made a massive mistake and we're going to reap the consequences. But trying to put those two things together to have both utopia and apocalypse, we're going to burn the planet up pretty soon. But also we have these amazing powers. We could totally deal with this maybe. It's a very strange mix, but it does seem to characterize these guys. There's a combination of optimism and pessimism, of utopia and apocalypse. And one side of that, the science side, does indeed seem to focus in Silicon Valley. 
maybe that's a good transition to Eric Weinstein, a Silicon Valley guy. Mm-hmm. He works for Peter Thiel and he just has an incredibly high respect for mathematics. Right. Yeah, I should say that everything that I have seen about the Weinsteins in the past little while, I'm just talking the past week or so, has been about various claims about... So apparently on his podcast, Eric Weinstein said his brother should have won a Nobel Prize for his work in evolutionary biology or something. And he had this kind of crank theory of everything in physics that I think ultimately nobody took that seriously. But, you know, he had this theory about people didn't take it seriously for, you know, nefarious reasons or something. So I don't know anything about all that, but I felt like I should mention that that's the current discourse around the Weinsteins. Yeah, it is very revealing, right? And in two ways. First of all, this notion that we need great genius to present some kind of new theory that will solve a hundred years of mostly stagnation. We don't have a new Einstein, a new Max Planck. We don't have some way of dealing with the core conflicts within physics. Uh We need a new genius and we cannot produce it. And that's a sign of institutional failure. So there's the optimism of a new scientific theory, a new scientific genius might just come up. We have to try out crazy ideas. We should be more open to Eric Weinstein's strange mathematical physics ideas. But on Uh the other hand, there's this pessimism. Institutionally, we are screwed. Our elites are nothing but self-dealing cranks. They say that they're about the truth, but they're actually about their own reputations, about their own clubbiness, and about disdaining strangers, outsiders. That's, of course, very on brand, as we say on Twitter, for the intellectual (laughs) dark web. And that does not mean it's false. At least it points to these two, indeed, very serious problems that we seem to be, for all our institutions, super dependent on some genius coming up. And on the other hand, that the institutions seem to be letting us down. And I think one reason why it's so easy to voice these criticisms of academia nowadays or of the Nobel Prize is what have they done for us lately? What have these incredibly prestigious, incredibly well-paid institutions, were they offering mankind? Which is the other reason to indeed turn to Silicon Valley. That's apparently where the future is being produced. Everywhere else, no. Mm-hmm. We don't know what the future is, but we know where it's going to be produced. Right. That's where it's coming from. And that does show a strange willingness to give up. Liberalism in general is pessimistic now. It has control of very many important institutions, but it's not doing anything, producing anything. It's not achieving anything new. Life today isn't transformed from what it was 20 years ago in line with any kinds of promises made or 40 years ago or whatever. And so we seem to be running out of future except these kinds of people who try to produce the future in Silicon Valley from the point of view of science and startups. That's much weirder than it seems, right? That by 2020, you'd have the hope that the economy has a future relying on actually a very small number of incredibly wealthy people Uh concentrated in this one version of industry. We have reduced technology to stuff you can do with computers on the internet. Maybe we're going to achieve something big there, but also it's a desperate lack of alternatives. There's something very unusual about this having so much influence over life, over the mind, over hopes for the future. Not least of all, because the more you look at these people and their techie ideas, the more it's obvious that there's much of this world that they have very little experience of and no particular competence to speak about. And yet, if you want to have a public space in America, you have to go to Twitter, you have to go to Facebook. 
Right. So if you're younger, you can go on YouTube or Snapchat. There are actually very few options and nobody saw this coming. Nobody knows how to deal with it. We really are incredibly dependent on this very small number of incredibly influential people. And we don't even know what do these people think about the future? What are they trying to achieve here? What is the vision? If there is a kind of future for liberalism now with the internet, what exactly is it going to be? There is indeed a serious institutional problem there that on the one hand, we're not clear on are we saying Facebook is good or that it's a political catastrophe? And on the other hand, we're not clear on what it even does or how, because it's all black boxed. What's specific to the new public space that you can have online is that it is corporate property and you can't know how it works. By design, it's supposed to be opaque so that you can't abuse it, supposedly. So you just have to trust people for Google, for search. You just have to trust people for Facebook, for news curating feeds and all that also with Twitter. We have created strange new masters that come from tech and replicate on the level of technology this other problem we have with institutions on the level of science. The difference is that the people in tech are making something. We don't know. Is Facebook progress or a political suicide move for Mm -hmm. democracy? But at least something is happening, whereas in theoretical science, we don't see that there is some great new achievement. And on the other hand, they share in common institutional opacity. They're absolutely dark to those of us who are on the outside, which Mm -hmm. means everybody. And so you can see even at that level, that's one step down from science and technology, that people like the intellectual dark web are right to complain that the institutions are self-dealing, corrupt. They, in principle, exclude everybody who is interested and involved in what they're doing, except this small number of people who are insiders. So uh, I don't have any particular capacity to judge physicists, so I have no idea about whether those theories are true or false or what have you. It's only this big social problem we have with science and with technology at a more applied level that concerns me. And so I think that because of all this opacity and because of our incapacity to judge whether developments we have seen, like social media, is this progress? Is this the making of a new economy or is it all delusion? Because we can't deal with these things well, it's much more plausible what the crazier side of Silicon Valley is saying when they're saying Skynet is coming, the matrix is happening. Mm -hmm. Well, how would we know? And so that's, I would say, the public political part of the problem. We are shut out of institutions that move at a level of knowledge that is so specialized and concealed by design that we can make no serious judgments and we have nobody who will make those judgments on our behalf. And I think that to the extent to which the public turns to liberals who want to regulate Facebook because of the 2016 elections or conservatives who want to regulate Facebook because of censorship or Mm -hmm. the intellectual dark web because they champion free speech debate. It's because people want more openness since they're not sure that they're getting any competence. They might put up with secrecy if they were sure of competence and progress. Mm -hmm. But if they're not anymore, they might get really, really angry at who's telling them how to behave. So that would be the public political problem. And next to that is the thing you mentioned about maybe believing in panpsychism. The universe may be itself soul. Mm -hmm. Somehow it has a capacity to disclose itself and we're connected to it. Or maybe animals are really, really like us. We just haven't looked at it with the right scientific cast of mind to figure out that we could have community with animals in some soul-like way. Might not be theory or intellectual, but again, it would be some kind of sharing in soul. Apparently, liberals realize that it's really, really lonely to be human. (laughs) They want some kind of community with something else. 
But then there's a further theoretical problem aside from whether the universe has a soul or whether animals have souls in any way that is interesting to us. There's also the question about technology. What sort of thing is it? Do robots have souls? Do computers have souls? Is there any way that is to say for them to experience things and to communicate? Right. There you see another one of the limits of liberalism. Whether you can achieve progress and whether you can persuade people that you're giving them progress is the political problem. But on the theoretical side is, do the computers have experience? What is the liberal theory of soul that says what a computer sort of thing is? Whether the computers have rights? Whether computers have, in some sense, right. freedom? Because and this is massive powers around us and they run the financial things and most of the infrastructure. So I think one idea that links this with liberalism that you've been talking about is Peter Singer's idea of moral progress as being related to what he calls the expanding circle. You know, liberal history works like this. At first, only this very small number of humans were recognized as deserving of rights and, you know, their experiences mattering, their pleasure and pain mattering in the utilitarian sense. Maybe only a very small number of humans were recognized as having reason, you know, having intellection in the meaningful sense. This circle expanded to include, say, people of a certain race and gender, and then, it, you know, we like to think it expanded to now include aspirationally all humans. And Singer thinks, well, once you recognize the right moral categories, which presumably are utilitarian categories, you'll understand that this circle also includes animals. And maybe the panpsychist would say, actually, this circle includes everything, really. Every part of the universe is, is part of the circle of care in this way. Now, of course, what it means to be part of the circle differs based on your underlying moral theory. So, for example, you know, Singer is very problematic in some circles because he says things like, you know, some lives aren't worth living, right? If you're disabled, your life might not be worth living. Well, why wouldn't your life be worth living if you're disabled? Well, it comes from this view that what makes a life worth living is just a matter of what sorts of experiences it involves. You know, so if your life has a lot of bad experiences, then it's not worth living that's simple enough you know some people find it monstrous some people just find it silly other people find it compelling but the interesting point to me about the expanding circle is that it seems like almost everybody has a point at which they say okay now the circle has gotten to the right point right okay we've included animals but not plants right so now we're at the right point or we've included you know dogs but not fish you know fish don't need to be in the expanded circle they're not the right sorts of things or, okay, we've included plants, but not, you know, pencils, because we're not panpsychists. The logic of the expanded circle is kind of compelling as a philosophy of history, but as an ethic, actually, the right ethics would tell us what the circle ought to be, right? To me, it often seems that, you know, there's this Marxian logic. You know, Marxists are sometimes criticized for not having an ethics. And the response, Brian Leiter, who's famous for being a kind of caustic philosophy and law blogger who sometimes insults people very publicly and stuff like this, has an article about the Marxist philosophy of history where he says, Marxism doesn't need a normative theory, meaning Marxism doesn't need to say that Marxism is better than any other view because they can just say it's inevitable, it's going to happen, right? So if you have a philosophy of history, you don't need an ethics. I'm probably misrepresenting his article a little bit. Um, I don't remember it that well, but it's something along these lines. It does seem to me to a certain extent that taking the idea of the expanding circle too seriously, or even without kind of some of the utilitarian underpinnings of it, 
just taking a philosophy of history too seriously leads to you not having actually a vision of, well, you know, is the future actually going to be better than the past? You actually have to make that judgment if you're doing normative theory instead of just saying, here's who's going to win. So you just ought to think that whoever's going to win in the long run of history is is good. Yeah, I'm with you on this, and I think that you're getting to a fundamental issue in the self-understanding of liberalism, and therefore in the path forward, if there is any. The circle of care, the circle of beings that we should care about, because they themselves have a capacity to care, to feel pleasure and pain, to want something better and not want something worse in some sense, is an attempt to put soul back together again, to put a claim about what the beings are, what is the truth about the plant, scientifically speaking, and on the other hand, what conduct should be. It's supposed to put somehow theory and practice together through science. Of course, in some ways, it falls into insanities immediately. Whatever you think about the plant and an animal, Animals eat plants, and sometimes plants eat animals, and animals eat each other. Uh It's not that the lion feels pain and pleasure and the gazelle doesn't. It's that the lion eats gazelles. To think about pleasure and pain in this way beyond human beings is therefore transparently insane. But Uh uh, the fact that these contradictions emerge immediately, it is observable and scientifically attested that animals eat each other and eat plants and so on and so forth. And so pleasure and pain cannot be said to have any natural status as a guiding principle of conduct. Right, certainly animals aren't utilitarians. Exactly, and there you see that utilitarianism is actually an intensely moralistic idealism. Right. Because you can raise dogs and cats not to eat each other anymore. Raise animals to eat maybe synthetic meat in the future, right? So as a description of being, of what is real, of the natures of the animals, it's insane. But as a method of dealing with life, it's not impossible to do. We have domesticated animals and got them to stop killing each other, whereas they would in other circumstances. And indeed, they try to kill us. So there's that. We might get ourselves to stop killing animals in the way we have before. It's not, strictly speaking, incoherent or impossible to imagine that everybody turns vegetarian. And so we no longer raise all these animals to slaughter. So even though it has very little to do with reality, it can have a lot to do with human action, partly because of what liberalism prizes, which is technology and science. You can domesticate animals, you can maybe re-engineer them genetically, Maybe you can create lions that don't hunt, or I don't know how to put it. But the principle involved normatively or politically in the circle of care expanding is the full transformation of all life into domesticity. The full transformation of everything by human beings. You could sort out maybe all forms of life. It seems crazy to think so, but you can certainly do that to some extent. Uh, recreate in a technological way various forms of Mm -hmm. life, certain kinds of beings. I think there you see why, although these theories are obviously contradictory, nobody really has a problem with that contradiction if they're attracted to them or have any interest in this sort of use of power. Make the world more artificial. It doesn't matter what these animals naturally do or plants or whatever. You can remake them through artificiality. Animals in a zoo or in a reservation can be prevented from behaving as they would in other cases. You can make them behave in the way you want them to behave. So you can impose your will on all of them. It's not entirely incorrect to call that morality, since you are guiding conduct. It just involves a lot of self-delusion and irrationality. So that would bring up this question, why are people so desperate to keep expanding the circle of care? 
why do you want to believe that the cat and the mouse will be friends or things mm-hmm. of that character? Human beings are super needy. It's lonely and in a way depressive to be human because, you know, you're mortal. If human beings find it very, very difficult to deal with pain and can treat pleasure as a narcotic, benumbing you to the inevitability of death and the pain, then you might want to impose on the world utilitarian principles so that you don't have to have those experiences anymore. I mean, if you go on YouTube or wherever, the animals there are already curated with respect to the utilitarian principle of always giving pleasure and never giving pain, right? The animals don't do dangerous things that would scare you. They don't suffer terrible pains that would uh, pain you. That's what we prefer. And people might keep going with that fantasy so long as they can. If you can curate the internet, surely you can take this a step further and keep pushing legislation, keep pushing Uh consciousness raising for animals to be treated differently, including to be forced to behave differently. So there's a connection between this moralism of utilitarianism, let there be no pain, banish suffering from being, and the attempt to conquer nature through science, which is typical of liberalism. Since pain and death are natural, they have to be dealt with. And indeed, there's another big Silicon Valley project, the fight against death. Yes. To abolish mortality, maybe to become a machine or just to take control over genetics so that your telomeres no longer degenerate and you eventually die. This would seem to be the attempt to fully think through the opinion that knowledge is produced by making. Only those things that you can make and remake predictably can you truly say to have knowledge of. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, that through knowledge, human beings are free. You can impose your will on the world through scientific knowledge so that you can recreate the world in your own image. We are doing that to the world all the time, right? Most people these days have an experience of the world that is primarily artificial if they live in a liberal regime. There are places where people have to deal with nature, often nature red in tooth and claw, as Kipling said. But in liberal regimes, people deal with nature that's been made artificial by liberalism. It's the way we think about animals, the way we think about plants, the sorts of things we do. Nature is a subject of legislation, of stories we tell children, Uh of moral opinions about littering and public awareness campaigns about pollution and international treatises. There's a lot of human effort put into turning nature into something that we would like better and that would allow us to like ourselves better. And this turning of nature into not that which stands over against human power, but that which is arranged by human power is, I would say, definitive of liberalism. It only follows that we also like to run experiments on each other because human nature too has to be redefined through science and technology in order to be taken under control. Maybe the human body is a broken machine and it could be prevented from dying if only you could fix the machine. And indeed, some crazier people in Silicon Valley think that maybe you can just download your consciousness into the cloud or into a machine that doesn't feel pain, doesn't hurt and cry, doesn't get lonely or feel scorned, and of course will not have to fear death. These are all assertions of freedom through scientific technology. The freedom to recreate natural beings into artificial beings that are better, or at least seem better from a certain point of view, or do certain things better that we, from our liberal point of view, wish to do. So I would say what defines the intellectual dark web as liberal is ultimately this belief in scientific technological Uh progress driving social progress, that you can transform 
what people believe, how they behave, how they will treat their children, and so on and so forth, through science, technology, and the popularity of science and technology. Right. Enlightenment public reason. And if there's something that makes them imperfect liberals, it's that they also have this capacity for pessimism about these changes. That they think, you know, the changes need to be managed in the right way and things like that. Yeah, that's a very good point. So you could say that the first wave of liberalism was super enthusiastic about enlightenment power. We're running to the end of a second wave where you already see misgivings. Sure, our power keeps increasing, but what if we're going to use it for evil purposes? What if power is such, scientific technological power, is not good in itself? Maybe it's only good in some cases. Maybe it's only good under certain conditions, and therefore that brings up these questions about, well, if science can create all these powers and technology can create all these powers, but not adjudicate their goodness so that they're all automatically always good, then we're in trouble. We need some other kind of knowledge to decide which use of science is good and which bad, which right. knowledge is good and which bad. We need something that is not involved directly or obviously in that science or in that technological power itself. And so this is indeed a new kind of skepticism that brings off the whiff of apocalypse. Like Eric Weinstein will say things like the atomic experiment started a clock. We got these godlike powers, but we do not have any superior knowledge, judgment, or institutional arrangement of knowledge and judgment to wield these new powers effectively. So we gotta somehow deal with that. We are on the cusp of apocalypse precisely because we are on the cusp of utopia. Right. First wave liberalism was super psyched about utopia. And some people, like Steven Pinker or to a large extent Sam Harris, still seem to believe that we are on a crash course with utopia. We're going to crash into perfection. And if you have bad feelings along the way, medicate them. Do some transcendental meditation or some other kind of meditation or embrace Zen Buddhism or somehow give up your imagination which tells you insane fears or makes you wish for impossible things when you should in fact be wishing for this infinite progress. Those people do seem to be still stuck in that first wave of liberalism and to have no real account of the human possibility to wipe out humanity through nuclear warfare or whatever else. Other people who are also scared or feel the agony of this human power worry about climate change, not about nuclear war. And I'm sure there may be other worries, like what are we going to do if superbugs come up that were created by our enlightenment scientific power of antibiotics? Mm -hmm. Or any number of other worries that have at least some scientific plausibility so that scientific liberals could say we have moved from a wave of enthusiasm to the second wave where we also have despair running alongside the enthusiasm and it's not clear which of the two will win. And so I think that all of these guys to some extent are aware that there's danger, that there's trouble. They just have different ideas about how to deal with it that mm -hmm. depend on where their specialty lies. When in doubt, deal with your specialty. So for example, Eric Weinstein, because he's a mathematician, on his show The Portal, tells these friends of his about higher mathematics. Right. Somehow higher mathematics could save your soul or give purpose to your life. He says that I look at these things and I get wonder out of them in the sense in which a religious person gets wonder. Now, since he's an atheist, how the hell does he even know? <laughs> So let me ask you a question. Do you view this as fundamentally different from – so in social justice circles and kind of progressive circles more generally, they're also very concerned about this other side of technological progress. They're worried about things like um, 
you know, the utilitarians are worried about things like, will the super smart AI decide that humans are actually bad, you know, in utilitarian terms and just turn us all into paper clips or something like that? The progressives are worried about, will our super smart machines kind of learn our biases? Will they learn from the wrong humans? Will we make them in our image in the sense that progressives have come to view ourselves as, you know, ineluctably racist and sexist and so on? Do you view there as being a connection between those two sorts of worries or those two sorts of projects? You know, the algorithmic bias compared to the IDW style worries about technology is interesting. You know, the algorithmic bias view of progressive seems to be the things that are most wrong with technology are going to have to do with the fact that it's humans who created them, right? It's going to be sort of the history in the future. Whatever's wrong with the future is our fault now, right? Kind of the fact that the future is an avatar of the past. This, I think, connects up with this larger view of the progressive mindset, which maybe we're running afield from the IDW discussion, but the progressive mindset seems to involve, you know, when ta Coates talks about racism, he just talks, he uses the word history almost as synonymous with racism, right? So for a Coates type, he's sort of, he's talking about like being in this elevator with this woman who looks at him wrong or something. And he says, you know, his history is bubbling up in his veins or something. So history, you know, in the progressive mindset, at least just means injury, right? Like injury and history are almost synonymous. And that I think is certainly not something that you quite see with the IDW, even though they do have a sort of techno-optimism. They don't have this view of the past as having been kind of simply a site of injury, which will then be redeemed in the future, and the future and kind of this continual process of redeeming in this way. Yeah, I think you're right that there are two views of the danger of AI. One of them is that AI is the biblical God who will judge us and damn us because we deserve it. Right. <laughs> and that's a scientific expression through the AI judging in a utilitarian way, you know, and mm-hmm. it turns out that we just have to die for our own good. And that does codify technologically or for Silicon Valley what progressives believe, the Marxist opinion that history is the history of class struggle. Mm-hmm. And since the overclass is small and wicked and the underclass is large and apparently imperishable, most people have always been oppressed. And so history is the same thing as wickedness or misery. Now, the reason I connect the Silicon Valley AI killing us codification to the Marxism of progress is that Mm -hmm. it brings up a serious question. How moralistic can you be about history if, like a Marxist, you believe it to be necessary? Right. What's the point of getting so angry about class struggle and oppression when it was necessity that drove it? Right. If you just think there are these laws... These universal laws of history. Yeah, what's your role? What's, you know, where does the agency enter into? And, you know, what makes your actions good and what makes others' actions bad? Yeah, I think it's a real question for Marxism. How angry can you really get at a dog that has rabies? Yeah. How angry can you get at a shark bit somebody? Of course, sharks bite people. That's what sharks do. (laughs) And if history is scientifically determined and allows for progressive certainty, there's a judgment on history that is essentially unimpeachable unappealable, mm-hmm. well, then that's because it's necessity. But if right. necessity is not morality, and therefore you shouldn't really be praising and blaming. The oppressed have nothing praiseworthy about them, and the oppressors have nothing blameworthy about them. Right. 
that I think is something progressives can't deal well with and Silicon Valley types in as much as they adopt this strong version of an AI will wipe us out just like a judgmental god they can't deal with it well either and that's because they deny that there is soul to human beings that there is an Mm -hmm. inside inside of you that allows for mistakes that allows for lying Mm -hmm. that allows for the complexity of human phenomena including of course for the virtues and the seriousness about our own concerns and some degree of success of figuring out what kind of world we live in postulating a judgmental god AI when at the same time we admit we don't really know what AI is going to be shows you that this is a deep moral worry if not particularly thought through. It's not that we're worrying about something practical. It's that we're worrying about something essentially impractical. We have no idea what that thing might be. You can call it AI instead of the biblical god or the Zeus of Aeschylus or whatever. But it's essentially the same thing since you are not describing a machine that uh, comes with a blueprint that we can use or have experience of or attempt to build. It's a moral fantasy expressed in sci-fi terms because those are plausible, just like for Greeks, myths were plausible. Right. It does show this version of fear. What if after the wave of utopia and liberalism must come a wave of apocalypse? What if what we have done is irredeemable? And you could say maybe it's not some vengeful god or even some machine that malfunctions. Maybe it's necessity itself entropy let's say or something like that will wipe us all out or a cosmic accident because from our point of view if the planet is wiped out it's a cosmic accident but from the cosmic point of view it's not an accident it is a necessary event in the chain of efficient causation right right from a human point of view that you speak of accidents by deriving that concept from the concept of purposes if your purpose is to grab the cup of tea but you knock it over and it breaks and spills that's what you call an accident But you only mean to say that you did not intend to do that. It was not your intention or purpose. It didn't happen by accident. It happened by the laws of nature, just like everything else. But if you take the human being or soul out of it, then all there is is the everything else, the laws of nature. Maybe necessity itself is coming for us. And so you see how at the crest of this second wave of liberalism, you can already tell that there will be a third wave of liberalism, that will be apocalypse, that will be nihilism. Mm -hmm. It will tell you that this universe wants you dead, or rather doesn't even want you dead, it's just going to kill you. It just happens without any wanting or willing or intent. Right. The history is one big misunderstanding, but not in the sense that people said before. That is to say, before oppressors misunderstood morality. History is a misunderstanding in another sense. Everybody believed in morality in some way. The moral oppressed, the immoral oppressors all believed they had purposes and choices and freedom and morality, but it never existed. All that exists is the laws of the universe, of physics. Right. They make no room for human morality and they make no room for human reason. Yeah, you know, that's supposed to be, in a sense, the contribution of Darwinism is that you get kind of a simulacrum of purpose from the teleology of, you know, the game theory of evolution. Um, Of course, it's not purpose in the robust sense. It's not purpose in a normative sense, but it is, you know, something that organisms point themselves towards. It's just a pointless purpose in a way. And that's how you also get, you know, in addition to the view of people like Dan Dennett, who's kind of on the outskirts of the IDW from having been a new atheist with Sam Harris and Sam Harris himself 
you know, the view of consciousness as illusory. The other side of the view of consciousness as illusory is the view of consciousness as, I think you used the word accident in one of the things you were saying, the view of consciousness is kind of an evolutionary, well, you know, this whole idea of having an inside, having a mind, having a soul, having subjectivity, having something that it's like to be yourself, you know, it's not quite clear what evolutionary purpose that serves. You know, our grand scheme of understanding the universe is evolutionary. And uh, maybe it helps us integrate information in some way. But if you really think about it, you know, you could have something that's built like us, that integrated information in the same way without being conscious. So the whole idea of consciousness is kind of, you know, maybe it's this big accident which nonetheless has moral import. Consciousness has to have massive moral import for the utilitarian because of the role played by experience, but may not have import for the way we understand our place in the universe. We may have to say, you know, our place in the universe is just kind of the who we are, who it feels like to be us, is kind of, you know, incidental. We're along for the ride. Yes, exactly. And, uh, I actually think, you know, this, this sort of view is called epiphenomenalism in the philosophy of mind. It's hard to see this view becoming that powerful just because it's hard to live when you think about things that way. But I actually think that if you start out from this picture of the world, it's not that easy to avoid coming to this conclusion that you're going to, kind of like we were saying with the laws of history and Marxism, you know, you are going to do things in the way you're programmed to do subjectivity to the extent that you have it is just you know it's the movie screen right you live your life and you also consume your life you know the way you might consume a television show it's the stream of experiences you know you fear missing out on certain experiences you have a bucket list of certain experiences but living a life and consuming a life might be thought of as kind of inherently separable things where your li your life could be lived without there being a kind of consumer behind it of course, it's incredibly alienating to think that way, but it's, you know... It and you can see how popular it is in certain ways in our times. Tocqueville talked about this as materialistic pantheism. Mm -hmm. It's a materialistic denial of soul, but also a pantheistic assumption that everything has some kind of cosmic force in it. Right. Things are happening in some way. There's scientific necessity always moving things, but you don't have agency. Right. You might live with the delusion that you do. You might live as if you were the human being that you think you are, but you know you're not. And so you see the temptation to turn everything into therapy or an addiction if you don't like it. That's a consequence of that belief. And it must be a great strength in a democracy because in a democracy, we all see each other and we're all kind of the same. Democracy strengthens you in a kind of utopian way to say, well, you're no better than me. Like, I'll do it my own way. But then also it comes down on this apocalyptic side where you say, well, I'm not better than you either. Why should I listen to me? Why should anyone listen to me? Right. So from this moral political standpoint of how we experience each other, you begin to see the roots of this problem, looking at the world as one cosmic joke. And it's a joke nobody laughs at. <laughs> you think you're human, but then when you try to be human, you run into problems that gradually reveal to you that, no, you're not human. It was mm -hmm. just a delusion. It's just a cosmos out there that you had bad genes and that's why you're an alcoholic or you have a degenerative brain disease. It's just chance. Everything is a matter of chance. Everything is a matter of probabilities. Mm -hmm. You can't really know anything except that, and you can't really do anything about it except to some extent accept it. Just let it happen. 
It's a kind of nihilism, it's a kind of Buddhism that flows from this. And as I said, you see it in the fact that people tend to turn everything into a question of therapy. You just have to change how you feel about things to adjust. Right. You just need medication or some other kind of scientific power to help you adjust. That suggests that you don't really have personal responsibility. It's a delusion. This is not, of course, all false. It really is the case that there are causes impelling you. You're not simply and perfectly free since nobody chooses to be born. Nobody can transform himself at will. Nobody can fend off death just because he wants to. Nobody can predict when lightning will strike him or what have you. So clearly anything like complete freedom or a mind that is fully in control of the world or the self is a delusion. But so also this other view where everything is up to chance, everything is a matter of probabilities that have a cosmic backing. That too is a delusion, but it's a very popular one. The opposite delusion is way more aristocratic. It means that you're the man. You're the uh, you could totally achieve this. Right, yeah. And in fiction, it's still attractive, right? When we run to that aristocratic martial delusion in our fiction, because in our reality, we live with this fear that everything is premeditated without a meditator. Right. Everything is just cosmically set and we are powerless to act in our lives. Morality can only belong in fiction. That's the only place where the good guys win. And it affects society, it affects politics, it affects how people live their lives, it affects how people think about science too, because it sets certain boundaries to what may be known and what cannot be known, and how you even think about beings and their causes. So one version of that we've already gone through in terms of Marxism and progress, which only affirms that kind of necessity for purposes of politics or history. But even there, if you think about necessity, you have to say, as you suggested that some people say, that consciousness is an accident and morality is an accident derived from that accident. Mm -hmm. Somehow in historical evolution, this crazy stuff appeared and it made us more unhappy than other monkeys. Right. Chasing that unhappiness ever since. And the only solution is to go back. You have to somehow, through the power of science, transform human beings back into monkeys. Again, what I said, uh, utilitarianism properly understood is a nihilistic form of morality. Mm -hmm. You have to reduce human beings to the level of caring only about pleasure and pain. It's not because you'll conquer the planet, it's because you'll stop worrying about your mortality. Dogs don't know they're going to die in another five years. Right. It doesn't worry them. So that's one branch of this nihilism. It says consciousness was just one big accident. And you could get super moralistic about it in a Marxist way and want progress, but the end of progress has to be that. You're never going to be happy because you're not just unhappy about oppression. You're also unhappy about being mortal. You're also unhappy about uncertainty in life. What is going to fix all these problems? Some people still have the deluded hope of being immortal through the machine. Some people just have the less deluded hope of using the machines to remove humanity from human beings. Come up with some kind of functional logic. Right. Turn people back to animals. That does seem to emerge from a certain view of science that says human beings are the creatures of evolution and yet we experience ourselves as individuals. But we now know through science the truth that we don't exist. It's just genes trying to replace themselves. Mm -hmm. Pardon me, to perpetuate themselves. That's what happens. Somehow in evolution this happened. But things that happen in evolution follow from that one purpose of reproduction and do not have any independent standing themselves. They are, as you said, epiphenomena. From the point of view of reproduction, many of them are just accidents, mm -hmm. mistakes. But we experience ourselves that way. We are aware of these two twin desires. The desire for eternity, which we now associate with the genes that are eternal. And on the other hand, the desire to be ourselves for individuality. 
That's, however, got to be surrendered to achieve progress. People in the intellectual dark will misunderstand progress because they're so close to it as liberals, and they do not understand the therapeutic power of the progressive who tells you it's your history that's angry when you're angry. It's your history that's acting up when you're acting up. You're not alone in this. You're not just this one small thing, unhappy and mortal and uncertain. You're a historical force. You're part of a group that has way more power than you individually have. Mm -hmm. Now, you could say that this is deluded, and there's good evidence of that, but there's not less evidence that the liberal is deluded. The liberal who asserts some kind of individualism is himself deluded. Right. It's not like individuals create themselves, right? What the progressive can say to the liberal and the liberal cannot answer back is that you only think you're an individual because everybody told you since you were a child. Mm -hmm. You think you're smart, but you're actually just a brat. <laughs> if you're an individual, make your choices, what do you want for dinner, what do you want for your birthday, and you thought that your birthday is the most important day of the year. It's meaningless. You're meaningless. The scientific answer to that is not evident. What the liberal can say is, live as if you were important. Right. And run that moral calculus of pleasure and pain. But, you know, that itself has to depend on a group. It has the characteristic of what liberals otherwise call political totalitarianism. Because if what gives you pleasure is killing dogs on Fifth Avenue, that's not legal. Right. Your pleasures and pains don't count. You are told on the one hand that pleasure and pain count because they are what spontaneously occurs. Mm -hmm. They are not ideology. They are not some bad dream or some cooked up brainwashing. They're just pleasures and pains. Spontaneous. Natural. But if some spontaneous pleasures turn out to be illegal, well, we're just going to have to close our eyes to that or some ways of inflicting pain are legally mandated, well, we're just going to have to accept that because of the greatest good of the greatest number. In another more individualistic mood, the liberal would say something uh, that's totalitarianism, that's groupthink, that's the assertion mm -hmm. of the group against the individualism of the individual, against his spontaneity. But, you know, what other morality can you have except utilitarianism on the basis of modern evolutionary science? So let me ask you a question that's going to take us in a slightly different direction. And then at some point, we'll probably want to stop. Um, <laughs> okay, shoot. Yeah, so, so I wanted to time. ask you about, there is a member of the, at least the intellectual dark web circle, who I think doesn't necessarily fit that well into what we're saying. And I kind of don't understand him and how he fits into the thing. So how much do you know about Douglas Murray? I don't know anything about Douglas Murray. And he's recently written a book, which is kind of like the IDW book, right? It's about what happens when a bunch of, you know, social justice warriors are mean to his friends on Twitter and stuff like that. I understand that to be the theme of the book, although maybe I've read more people who are negative on it than people who are positive about it. And he's also less concerned with, you know, Silicon Valley issues and more concerned with, you know, European issues of Muslim refugees and things like that. So how do you think that fits in? Yeah, you're right. Doug Murray is obviously both significantly younger and also he's a humanist, uh, an intellectual in the sense of concern with human affairs, doesn't seem to have any interest in science and therefore doesn't involve himself in those issues. Right. He gives such puzzles and agonies to these other guys who are trying their best to stave off progressive tyranny. The only thing he has in common with them is a general deference to science and a specific enmity to progress. These are all friends like so many other people are because they are anti-woke. Right. And in the case of Doug Murray, you see somebody who's much more thoughtful about human things than these other guys are, but without claiming any other grounding than politics. 
Right. In certain ways, even Sam Harris seems to be still a first wave liberal who's all about utopia. Doug Murray is even more so that. Mm -hmm. He doesn't seem to notice that liberalism runs into these contradictions on its theory of causation, telling you, sorry, but your soul just died. That's the title of a Tom Wolfe essay on neuroscience Mm -hmm. affecting morality. You're not responsible for yourself. You're neurochemically determined. You know, that is a problem at the core of liberalism. If human beings are to be understood as meat machines, there's no (coughs) depravity. Yeah, sorry. There's no depravity, there's no wickedness, there's no you're evil, much less you're going to burn in hell. You're just actually neurochemically unbalanced and therefore ill-adjusted. That is the moral problem at the core of liberalism and the desire of liberalism to comprehend everything, especially animals, is to prove that human beings and animals aren't different. And since no shark can be said to be evil in a moral sense, just bad for you maybe, so also no human can be said to be evil in a moral sense. Just, you know, might disagree with you. The assertion of identity there is an attack on morality, whereas Doug Murray comes from a liberalism that's super sure that morality is a real thing. Right. That wickedness, good and evil are real, and they are grounded in our politics and in some nebulous way in our nature. That is to say, because we have freedom of choice. Since we experience it, we have to think it through. But that means rejecting the science that tells you no. Right. Hence why I think that he's not really interested in science. To get a sense of that, I think, is, you know, he talks about being a gay man and says, if they discover a gay gene tomorrow, that doesn't bother me because I don't define myself by sexuality. Right. That's not my identity. If it's some part of my nature, I don't mind. Now, I would say that actually you should be thinking about it. Mm-hmm. You should try to understand your nature. But I think that you see much more political sanity and in his case, a kind of conservatism. Yeah, so you think that's because, so we talked about how all these other IDW members, they seem to say, we can get you away from the hell of politics. And I'm I'm very sympathetic, you, you may have seen this in some of my writing, I'm sympathetic to this idea that dealing with politics is just like worse than dealing with other things, right? You have to argue with people, you have to understand yourself as fundamentally in conflict with other people, you have to see your actions as power seeking, you know, and... You know, you don't get to just say, oh, well, I'm just thinking about the biology of these things. I'm just curious. You know, I'm just indulging my curiosity and, you know, asking interesting questions and trying to answer them. You know, when you think about politics, you have to say, I'm well, what I'm fundamentally trying to do is impose my view of the world on other people. The slogan, which I've never understood completely, politics about power. And so you need to think of yourself as trying to gain and impose power over other people. So I am sympathetic to that. And it does seem like Murray is somebody who doesn't have that view of saying we should be trying to escape politics. We should be trying to find a lens that we can reduce politics to. Yeah, that's true. So the image that Doug Murray gives of himself and uh, a bunch of other people who are like him, I saw him uh, have a conversation, spectator event. For those who don't know, it's a British magazine that's Mm -hmm. conservative but cool, (laughs) at least in the Gen X sense. And uh, he was talking with this novelist, Lionel Shriver, a very intelligent woman and a very interesting novelist that's also this older style of liberal. She likes to say that she wants her novels to show sympathy for those people to whom the world doesn't show sympathy. That's again that liberal desire to extend the circle of care. Whoever's unpopular, there'll be a liberal defending that person. And uh, this is, of course, not intrinsically a bad thing. You would want, uh, if somebody's unpopular because he's crazy, maybe he needs medical attention or at least whether it's a asylum or some church helping him out, at least somebody take care of him. 
so also of course with people accused of crimes just because you're unpopular and people might want even to lynch you maybe you should still get a lawyer so i don't speak mm-hmm. against liberalism all i mean in this case is that there is a desire to defend the unpopular and it's not said exactly why but the reasoning would seem to be that human beings spontaneously wish to be the same to have the same views and whenever somebody disagrees to kill him to impose their will Mm -hmm. that is to say that politics is essentially ugly now science is sometimes ugly you might start experimenting on human beings or create bombs that lead to catastrophes but science is essentially beautiful right Whereas politics is essentially ugly since violence and killing are necessary to it. In science, people are supposed to speak leisurely. In politics, there's always going to be shouting. Right. And so Doug Murray thinks of himself, he says, as a weapon that destroys minds. He says, woke has made our society a minefield, and I'm trying to clear paths Mm -hmm. through that minefield so that people can recover a liberalism that is sane, a liberalism where people debate each other, take arguments when they feel strongly about something that they've thought through and try to further the public understanding and not try to destroy each other, not try to ruin each other's livelihoods, get each other fired or jailed or silenced. Mm -hmm. That's why he's anti-woke. He wants to go back to the good old liberalism that was for free speech. And that makes him a conservative from the liberal point. He wants to conserve that free speech of the past. But if you asked him what grounds free speech i'm not sure that he would give you a compelling answer no i'm well i'm I not sure that anybody has a compelling a answer good point and that's uh, i think the bigger problem what if free speech becomes unpopular mm-hmm. what if the democratic consensus in a polemical way is to attack liberalism right. and its free speech doctrines So you might see this sort of problem come up that the people who understand themselves as the highest exemplars of the regime, the liberals, end up being a minority and might have to take up arms against the majority. This is often a concern with liberalism and with woke version of liberalism. Maybe the coalition of the minorities isn't a majority coalition. In that case, it might have to impose itself by force or to quote a patented progressive phrase, by any means necessary. So there's always this question, where is the democracy? Where's the majority? What would people consent to? What do they find compelling? And it might not be free speech. And so he mostly seems to think of things in negative terms. Mm -hmm. We have to fight against certain bad things that are corrupting our institutions. But he doesn't seem to think that maybe the institutions themselves are a problem. Right. Either imperiled, so that it's not enough to defend them. You might have to think, why are they so vulnerable? Or maybe there's something rotten at the root. In a sense, wokeness is just non-judgmentalism taken to an extreme. Right. In a sense, the people who become super aggressive about transgender are simply taking the principle of individual freedom to its radical conclusion. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and self-determination and things like that. Yeah. Exactly. So every principle that is used in the process might be something you can expand, including free speech. But also, you know, including science, which is the problem for the intellectual dark web and for liberalism in general. Liberalism claim not just that liberalism will steer democracy and the majority will agree with it because they get benefits and it's reasonable and it doesn't cause catastrophes because it's science, it's enlightenment. Right. But it also claimed that whenever it discovers new rights to extend the circle of care, it will be politically practicable and fairly coherent intellectually to go get those new rights. But what if that's not true? For example, we saw just in recent years why liberals are now scared of progressives, because progressives have abandoned science in order to preserve freedom. 
right. up to five years ago, say in the Obama years, the big deal was gay marriage. And gay marriage was argued on scientific grounds. That is to say, as Lady Gaga says, the scientist of our times, I was born that right. way. Since the natural is the spontaneously occurring, and every gay person says, well, I'm just spontaneously this way. Right. Then that's the science. And therefore, a right comes from that fact. This is a case where the is does generate the ought. Liberals aren't necessarily for the fact-value distinction. Sometimes they want facts and values to merge, to be identical. Since gay people say it is spontaneous, the society has to affirm as true what they say and give rights. And that's nature. And that's how you get your freedom and self-determination. And the second that was done and Obama was out of office, they said actually the natural and the spontaneously occurring are the worst thing in history. Right. The anti-natural, the anti-spontaneous, the scientifically mutilating, that is freedom and self-determination. And so we need transgender rights, maybe including for preteen children. Maybe they too have to be reassigned because nature is terrible. The nature that was great the day before yesterday is the worst monster in history today. And this is comical and insane, but it does have a coherence, which is asserting self-determination. Right. And so from that point of view, the conflict within liberalism between more intellectual dark web types and wokeier types would be, has the self-determination gone too far or gone too far for 2020? Right. Maybe this will be de rigueur in 2040, but we shouldn't push it. Right. Yeah. There's, I think there's always that, um, you know, I was, I've been working on a potential book proposals and one was on some of these themes we've been talking about in moral progress and the philosophy of history. And I was reading this old article about, um, discussion of gay marriage in the 2008 debate where a bunch of the candidates said something like, we're not there yet, or I'm not there yet. So the, the idea of not being there yet, I think of as being this core, but like in the way that many core ideas of an ideology are just incomprehensible, you know, the notion seems to be history is moving, you know, in a certain direction. This direction is unambiguously good, but at the same time, I, you know, I sort of have the right to move at my own pace and we have the right to move at our own pace through history, even though the endpoint is going to be utopian. And, you know, even though everything wrong is part of history and everything good is what comes after history, which I think is maintained even in the kind of non-Fukuyama progressive circles through this view of history as trauma. You know, it's not the utopian vision of the end of history exactly, but it's this kind of therapeutic vision of, oh, you know, history is where bad things happen. So come in and talk about, you know, how your parents messed you up. Come in and talk about how, you know, you were bullied in school and that's why you are the way now. You know, come up with a narrative for all the things that are wrong now that's rooted in something that went wrong in the past, you know. Yeah, exactly right. There's a contradiction in saying we all want to arrive at the end of history or as close as possible, but I, for one, am not exactly in a hurry. Right. These things aren't really reconcilable. Right. But, you know, people don't necessarily want to give up their comfort, for example, and don't necessarily want to be bullied into things. All of these things are easily understood if you pay attention to people. It's just practical psychology, but they don't have any grounding. Yeah. And that's the problem, that liberalism lives in this contradiction. It means take responsibility for you, the society, the planet, the universe. Understand it theoretically, progress it politically. But then it also says you still have experienced things your way and you're not in a hurry to change. Right. 
give me liberalism, but not yet. What's the religious quote? Make me, make me virtuous, but not yet, or something like that. Uh, yeah, chaste. Yeah, uh, make me Saint Augustine. Yeah, Saint Augustine, make me chaste, but not yet. Yeah. So I think the progressive has a similar view, and you know, there's this game we play. You know, I think of myself as a progressive, not necessarily in the ideological sense, but just in the sense of, you know, I'm a progressive in the same sense that I'm a Pennsylvanian, right? Like it's kind of where I was born and where I grew up and things like that. So, uh, you know, there's this game we play of, oh, what horrible things are we doing now that 50 years from now everybody will recognize are horrible and our kids will hate us for doing and things like that. And it's an interesting game because if you really buy into the ideas of progressivism, it's not clear why you shouldn't just stop doing all of those things. But on the other hand, it's not actually clear what the source of the authority of the game would be. Maybe the source of the authority is supposed to be like a post-Marxian philosophy of history under which, you know, of course, everybody will be more moral in the future. And that's just, you know, unavoidable, inevitable. Yeah, that would seem to be what's at stake here. What does it mean to say, I want freedom, I want perfection, I want to liberate the oppressed, but not this minute. Right. It seems to suggest that I need some seducing here. I need some persuading. How is that going to work? Why is that necessary? How is it possible? These are all interesting questions, but I think that you can say with plausibility at least this much. Progressives want to have at least some evidence that the science tells you this is the future, that there is consensus that this is the future before they agree. Right. And partly that's human because even progressives have to be human beings and that means that there's uncertainty. You don't actually know what the future is even though progressives have to pretend they know. Progress is a doctrine of providence just as much as Christianity is, right? It will tell you that you need to end in this end state and there is a guarantee for this end state. It is not a willful assertion, it is merely the revelation of the inevitable. But people in practice still disagree on all sorts of things, still shout, get violent, they say yes or no. So which way do you want to go? Especially if as a progressive you claim to have superior knowledge to most people. Mm-hmm then you have to both join the future and not make a fool of yourself when you join the future. You don't want to be proven wrong. So you need this kind of wooing, this kind of seduction, and that would be the authority of history. Right. It's an incredible form of nihilism when you say, you know, I want to be a fanatic of progress, but I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to believe. Right. It's one of George Orwell's famous jokes is that it's true that the medieval church would kill you on Wednesday if you didn't believe what they told you to believe on Tuesday. But our modern tyrannies will kill you on Wednesday for believing what they told you to believe on Tuesday. Yeah. This is why liberals today seem to hate wokies. Poses a problem within liberalism itself. You want superior knowledge, you want to be ahead of the wave before the others. But on the other hand, you don't want your hand to be forced by crazy people, by hysterical people in a hurry. Yeah, so the the idea of hurrying, it's such a strange idea, but yeah, I think Orwell, there's an intuitive pull to what Orwell says, but at the same time, there's something in it that I want to resist. So this is something, you know, you'll read somebody like Andrew Sullivan, you know, who is obviously kind of IDW adjacent, kind of part of the same dynamics at the moment, at least. You know, Andrew Sullivan will, or really anybody who writes about this stuff, I've written it too, I think. You write something like, oh, just five years ago, this view was acceptable, or, you know, just two years ago, or even just six months Mm -hmm. ago or something. But then you have to think about like, okay, so if it were 50 years or 100 years, this sort of change would be acceptable. But if it's only five years, you know, something must be going wrong. And it's not clear to me what makes the amount of time 
it's sort of like the we're not there yet thing, right? Like, why does it matter yep. that it's just five years instead of 50 years? Either a social change is desirable or it's not. It's not clear why the pace of change should matter this much. There is a kind of, you know, Burkean conservative traditionalist view of progress where you go very, very slowly and integrate all your insights before moving on to something else. So I guess in that sense, the pace of change could be important. I guess maybe the other sense is you could say, you know, oh, if it happens this quickly, it's a sign that there's some sort of moral panic or something like that. But in general, you know, the just five years ago thing, I don't always find it that compelling. What do you think yeah. of the, you know, you were talking before and you mentioned with Murray, I hadn't realized, this, you know, that he's only 40, which is younger than, you know, the kind of born in the 60s, you know, Gen X or intellectual dark webbers. What are the social dynamics that lead to these different views of technology and progress and therapy and history and things like that, you know, between Gen X? Well, you've got the boomers on the one hand and the Gen X, you know, the IDW think of themselves as anti-boomers. But, you know, when, when the millennials look at the IDWers, they don't distinguish between the IDWers and boomers. You know, like no millennial is going to be like, oh, Jordan Peterson you know, not a boomer, you know, Eric Weinstein, not a boomer. They're going to they're going to be like, OK, boomer. Right. Yeah. So what do you make of the generational politics from the other end? What does Gen X, you know, how how is Gen X going to reach these kids? Right? How does Gen X get to the millennials and to the Zoomers? Yeah, I think about this more than a little, just like about the IDW, <laughs> because it does seem to be socially and politically of some importance. And I think a lot of this has to do with the importance of technology. Strangely enough, technology wasn't so important as the Cold War and lifestyle liberalism were for Gen X, because these were the things that concerned the boomers in that time, from the late 60s through the 80s, more or less. Whereas after the end of history in the 90s, technology became much more of a big deal. Right. And certain assurance about lifestyle also put a freeze on civil rights conflicts and all sorts of other political conflicts. People were sort of happy that Democrat politicians would be moving to the right on the free market, right. some deregulation or cutting back welfare, and Republicans were going to be moving left on all sorts of issues and accepting gradually the society, as it were, without trying to moralize it or transform it into Christianity, or, you know, trying to destroy the welfare state or trying to roll back the new deal they had to just say okay it's there it's fine that consensus made for a very different era and pushed people into technology it was the only thing that was happening and so gen xers in general i don't think care about technology in the way in which millennials mm -hmm. care because the experiences were so very different and uh, i don't think there's that much understanding possible because of where people socialize People who grew up with the internet and as adults moved on to smartphones or were already children on smartphones mm -hmm. really do not have an interest in the past. Gen Xers had that interest in the past because they didn't have these things and were painfully aware of being under the tutelage of boomers mm -hmm. running everything. And the economy in the 70s was not doing well, and not even in the early 80s. It's a very different experience than the economy of the 90s. Right. But at the same time, I also think that there is similar because all the dreams of the end of history ended with catastrophes, 9-11 and endless wars, mm -hmm. the dot-com bubble followed by the financial crisis, right. followed by whatever we have now, which doesn't seem to be making people happy. No. And of course, massive partisanship, people hating each other, mm -hmm. trying to destroy each other's presidents. And you can see this electorally, it's not just a sentiment. There have been more wave elections since 1994. 
coming down to this sort of situation now where it's perfectly possible that a guy who hijacked a party, Trump, will be facing another guy who hijacks a party, Bernie. Right. This is obviously not what was in the plan when the Bushes and the Clintons were America's presidents mm-hmm. and presidents in waiting. So there's also not just a kind of assurance about technology as the basic platform on which you will live, but also a fear that it may all be super uncertain and that it's a crazy world out there. I think that makes Gen Xers more resilient than millennials, but on the other hand, far less confident or optimistic. It makes for significantly different experiences at a mass level since the differences introduced by the iPhone or the internet before that went global very quickly. I don't think people have yet caught up with the newest developments that global is over, that you cannot have any experience of the internet in China. They don't want you there. And that's because there's a state that runs things and the state that runs technology in a tyrannic way is actually a super success. Right. People admire their growth even if they fear what they do. So there's different worlds. There are different technological futures in some sense. You don't have that kind of global access that was supposed to be Facebook, friends across the planet. Everybody's on Facebook and everybody's a friend. Well, actually, we're not. And we're right. Not, and we won't be. So I don't think people have yet caught up with that. But I do assume that if you look at people younger than millennials, their experience will be, as people say, tribal. But actually just be more local because they have experiences of the failures of globalization, right. not of the successes of globalization in the 90s. But I think this level of sociology is only helpful to an extent. As I said, I prefer to think about things in terms of the waves of liberalism. Mm-hmm. That's an idea that comes from Plato's Republic, by the way. In the middle of Plato's Republic, Socrates talks about three waves of political revolution of what would it take to achieve perfect justice, the fully politicized equality Mm -hmm. that we seem to still be desiring today. (laughs) Things like, you know, the full equality of men and women and their identity, separating families, doing away with property, all of these things come from Plato's Republic. And so I think in terms of these three waves, the first wave of liberalism was super enthusiastic for power, for transformations through technology, and for the way technology can transform life. You know, it will create television, it will create new transportation, you'll be able to go around the world or see around the world, talk around the world, all of these things, telecommunications, these are typical of the era of liberal enthusiasm. And also the notion that science is there to fix things. It will give you more power so energy prices go to zero. It will give you more medicine so diseases go to zero. Mm -hmm. But of course, these things will never turn into nuclear weapons. They will never turn into biological weapons. You know, this kind of naivety. And the second wave of liberalism with these Gen X IDW types, you see people who are agonized by the awareness that actually it could go wrong. They're still in love with scientific technology. How amazing is that? But they're also afraid that maybe it'll kill us all. Right. So that, I think, is what makes for the second wave of liberalism. I think the third wave of liberalism will be nihilistic. It will be people who think that cosmic forces simply run away with us, Mm -hmm. that nothing you do matters in a deep sense. And on the other hand, it will be people like the Wokies who say, well, if nothing matters, what matters is your imposition of will. Mm -hmm. If you can screen the other people down, then at least you've proved that there's more future for you than for them. And I think that's where we're going. And I think that's why people are so worried about where comparatively minor problems seem to be pointing. Right. Right. We're not staring down the barrel of the gun here, but we're also feeling that maybe the ground we're on is shifting untrustworthy. We don't know it and we don't know what it portends either. It's not just that there's change, but it's change we don't understand. And we cannot rationalize as progress. Hence this conflict between people who say, actually, the future is inevitably better if you stop rocking the boat 
and the other people who are saying the only future is rocking the boat right. because they cannot agree on how to put together science and will their prognostication of the inevitability of progress with the desire to act possibly violently right now for massive change there are people who say right now is pretty good let's just make it better and there are other people who say right now is unbearable and since these are experiences and they are disputed between people who deny the ground of experience right you can't have an experience of history you just uh, you know have to make certain assumptions and maybe you should wage war on the basis of those assumptions but you cannot give people an experience of that so also you cannot make the science of evolution into an experience right you don't know what it's like to evolve yeah what the hell does that mean it's an incredibly abstract notion and i think that's why it's gotten to the ground of politics rather than anywhere else because politics is intuitive people may loathe it but they do also like to shout at other people and maybe see them cry and neither of these people fit there wokies should do what liberals used to do go to the courts that's where you claim your rights and of right. course these other liberals should be in academia and think tanks and these sorts of specialist institutions where only a few nerds talk to each other right but they're both crowding the virtual version of the public space right. they're desperately aware that that's where the future is and you somehow have to take control of people get a grasp of an audience prove that you have some kind of consensus and therefore that you are the future and the other people should go your way it's not entirely plausible and it, they do seem to be both old fashioned liberals and new wokies incredibly small fractions of the electorate but maybe influential maybe these minorities with political intellectual clout can be loud enough they can prevail because the electorate and people in general are confused mm -hmm. since people don't know what the direction of change is it's up for grabs you can say, well, just five years ago, let's stay the way it was. Or, you know, screw your five years ago. You're unjust. Right. You need to change. So it could go either way, depending on who persuades the public. But one thing that's obvious in this move to internet politics is there's been a loss of control over public opinion. Whatever public opinion is and even where it's shaped are now confusing of themselves. It can no longer be done on CNN. It can no longer be done right. on the networks. Fox News can't do it. Only old people watch these things. What young people think or what they'll be doing seems very, very hard to predict. Even advertising to young people has become a problem. Even thinking about what sociologically will they be like? Do these people still want to marry and they just aren't? Mm -hmm. Or maybe they don't want it anymore. Maybe they wanted it once but don't anymore. Or maybe they didn't want it that much to begin with. Who the hell knows? So it creates all this uncertainty even about basics of what does this society look right. like? What are we aiming at in a small way? Not fundamentally at the end of the universe and the end of progress. What's progress going to look like for two, three years, not for a hundred? All of these things seem to be maybe not up for grabs, but maybe up for grabs because how do you know? And so it tends to make people enthusiastic at the same time as they despair. Right. If things aren't predictable, maybe you can win it all. Yeah, it's because like the lottery, the lottery of history. Exactly. And that's, I think, the ultimate in fear of missing out. Everything is on the table now, right. right? Nothing is decided anymore. You could change it all. That's why I think there's so much enthusiasm in the air and at the same time, so much hysteria, so much certainty that we're going to get this future done and so much contempt for the past at the same time. Yeah. A strong brute for the passions. I don't know to what extent this will affect young people. That level of sociology is just so many millions of people that you cannot have an experience of how can you even tell yeah it's it's hard so yeah i um i don't have a great understanding of uh, well i mean you know 
the undergraduates, I guess, are Zoomers now. You know, an 18-year-old, somebody born after the year 2000 is probably Generation Z. The undergraduates here seem fine. There is this, you know, I've tried watching, you know, the YouTube videos that I... It's funny how these things switch around, but all these political commentators are worried about the kids are going to see the wrong videos on YouTube and they're going to become Nazis, right? It's basically the equivalent of Tipper Gore putting labels on rap music or whatever. But I've tried it, you know, similarly probably to what Tipper Gore experienced if she tried to listen to rap music. I've tried to watch some of these problematic YouTube videos and I just don't even grasp. There's something about the memes and there's all these fast cuts. And there's a way that you're supposed to be processing it that's quite foreign to me. It's Snapchat and TikTok. Exactly, exactly. It's the Snapchat, TikTok generation. You know, maybe it's an improvement from, I, I think of my generation as the thought catalog generation, which is not a good generation. It's a kind of self-indulgent generation. But it's also something that I that is comprehensible to me. You know, if somebody writes a 2000 word essay making a, you know, global geopolitical issue about own experience. And I think it's kind of incredibly self-involved and weird and narcissistic, but I also comprehend it. Right. I also understand, you know, it's a dynamic that I'm familiar with. It's a generation that I'm familiar with. And I don't completely understand I guess nobody ever does. I don't completely understand Generation Z. I don't completely understand either the woke part of it or the apparently significant and aggressive anti-woke part of it who's watching all these, you know, all these things on YouTube. I think of myself as kind of before my time in that when I was basically six or seven years old, I started using the Internet constantly and I used it to socialize and to learn about the world and things like that. So I was a digital native in that sense, but that was very like you go to the computer and then you go away from the computer, right? It's not the kind of immersion in the digital world that somebody who, you know, at age two is using a smartphone and an iPad and talks to Alexa. You know, my friends who have kids, their kids are, they just, if they're curious about anything, they just ask Alexa and Alexa just answers. She's always there, right? Yep. So these are kind of immersive experiences that none of us are going to be able to say exactly what future generations will look like. And I think the idea of IDW as Gen X generational politics is very interesting. And in addition to the boomers, the Gen Xers and the millennials, there's also whatever comes after all of us who will no doubt find reasons to relegate all of us to the past as well as every new generation does. I think that's a nice hopeless note yeah. to end on, Oliver. Yeah. I agree with you. I think that it's good to observe this basic sociological difference. We used to think even of the internet as a place out of the world and in a certain sense private. It was right. my place out of the world. And what was typical of it was anonymity. We all had weird names for our emails and weird names for IRC channels. Yeah, or AOL Instant Messenger. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Private, anonymous, <laughs> out of the world, whereas the the internet now in the second version is not anonymous it is your identity more so in mm-hmm. fact than the real world at least because you can know more people and more people can know you and it is not private it is public mm-hmm. it is not inside of your imagination anymore than inside of your room it's on the streets it's everywhere everywhere you move and therefore it's not outside of the world a private place where you go it is the world so there will be this future where there's a battle between augmented reality and virtual reality do you want more of your fantasy do you want more of some crazy notion that replaces the world or do you want an internet where 
it's easier to meet your friends who are in the city and you want to go out for a drink right or where social media connects your concert to your restaurant to the local band to all these things in a geographical urban way one assumes that in non-urban areas it will be somewhat harder to do but if you could plug google maps into alexa into your facebook and instagram and turn your facebook as mark zuckerberg wants into this sort of payment system like chinese corporations do alipay tencent these sorts of things that allow you to be there, see there, show there, pay there, get in, get out, all of these things that augment your possibilities of socialization. That will indeed make for a very different sort of experience. You right. know yourself as, as you were saying, narcissistic, self-involved, solipsistic, long posts. You will know yourself as what other people react to. Not a lot of inside, a lot of outside to your life. Everything much more public. And so I think for that reason, the one part of the IDW project is simply doomed. The notion that you'll be able to defend liberal individualism, where people's sociological, technological experience is you are what other people know you to be. Right. There's no individualism for the selfie generation. There's only public judgment all the time. Right. I'm not saying these guys don't have a certain nobility, precisely because they're trying to fight against these corporate and political and activist insanities. But I don't think they're going to win. They will have to change how they think about what's actually happening in the world today. Yeah, that makes sense. The selfie generation, your phone is more public, you know, than what you do with 30 people around in some classroom, you know, in school. Whereas for me growing up, I always went home to the computer and it was where it was escapism, like you say. Now the real world is the escape. And you see car advertisements that say, oh, this all wheel vehicle, it can take you somewhere that you don't get service, right? Cell phone service is this oppressive, you know, and part of taking a vacation, you know, people who don't have international plans, you don't even get this anymore. They share networks with other companies. But, you know, part of taking a vacation is your cell phone doesn't work, you know, when you go to Europe or wherever. <laughs> and uh, yes, there is this idea that the constant digital stream is oppressive in this way. And that's what you escape from. You know, the old internet, you escaped from your body. You know, maybe you weren't who you wanted to be physically or you you didn't have the right friends or something. And you would go home and you would you would make up a new name, like a handle, you would call it. You know, you could just become this entirely different person. Some people obviously pretend to be people who they aren't. And yeah, in the modern day internet, you know, all the most successful parts of the internet are completely the opposite, right? What do you do? You go on your Instagram under your real name and you post pictures of your body, right? There's a real divide and people try to maintain, you know, on Twitter, people have public and private accounts and not, I'm not talking about famous people. I'm talking about like high schoolers. High schoolers yeah. have their public and private accounts, right? So this is something that a ton of energy goes into, figuring out how to curate their image and figuring out which things go to which audiences. Um, exactly. What's acceptable publicly and what's not. How are you going to hide when you are seen so much more? Right. Because you desperately want to be seen. You're right. It does get complicated even at the level of everybody's going to be on Instagram. So, yeah. But before fantasy, but also the possibility of a disembodied mind. Yeah. Now, if you have a mind that's going to be embodied because you keep putting your body all the way out there, but also instead of fantasy, you'll get popularity. Everybody wants Facebook or Google to show them the most popular things. Everybody wants to be the most popular thing on Instagram. So you see in these ways, not just a desire to be known by others and liked, hearted, right. shared, pinned. Also, people want consensus. People want to see where everybody else is at. It's not 
quite clear where this goes because as you pointed out it certainly means that there's woke activism building its own consensus and drawing strength from knowing its numbers but also anti-woke activists and fewer centrists so right this silly complaint about tribalism really is about some of the inevitable mishaps when you try to build consensus to new technologies they're not perfect people didn't think what was going to happen there's no public debate on what happened when we all got on facebook or tiktok or anything in between who the hell knows it's going to be surprising and indeed as always deeply alienating, right? New technology makes middle-aged people feel old and other people feel middle-aged and young people, it makes them feel good to look at the others being old. <laughs> That's, I guess, the belief in progress. You get to a certain age and you know it's not for you anymore and the other people think it's for them now, their moment has come. One assumes that most of these things will disappear, that what things are like now or were like five years ago, they have absolutely no staying power. But the differences you can notice between how people behave are not perishable. People are not going to get another childhood to transform how they look at the world, their habits, what counts for them. These things are built into the generations when once they are formed and they are not up for grabs. Well, Oliver, yeah, we've had another long... Yeah, incredibly wide-ranging. I don't know I don't know how you're going to edit it up to get everything from Aristotle on the soul to, uh, you know, to the Zoomer generation and everything in between and Douglas Murray and everything like that. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure, you'll, I'm sure you'll produce an interesting and significantly shorter version. And it's always good to talk to you. Likewise. Very thought-provoking, and I'd love to do it again, you know, in a month or two. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And yeah, let's do a third one. Yeah. Let a few more events transpire and get back to yapping them up. Yeah, of course. That's the way, that's what we do. The world continues progressing and we continue commenting on it. That's life. Exactly. Yeah. We used to do things, now we talk about them. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all, all the best. Yeah, you too. Have a good afternoon. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs>